This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Well, uh, we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm going to read. We finished in verse 5 last week, uh, and I'm going to read from verse 5, which understands the middle of a paragraph, but that's kind of where we ended up. So I'm going to read that uh, to the end of the book. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word, which is always relevant, always true, always um, revealing to us what we need to know, to know you. And we tonight uh, thank you particularly for this passage of scripture, which aims squarely uh, at the center of our hearts, Lord. And so I pray that as we open this up tonight, that you would speak to us, that you, the chief shepherd, as we learned about last week, you, the chief shepherd, would shepherd us, that you would shepherd our hearts towards you, that you would shepherd us together as a people. God, I I just ask and uh, that you would, uh, Lord, relieve burdens tonight, that you would grant hope tonight, that you would grant uh, wisdom and discernment to all of us to know what kind of times and situations we live in, that you would grant hope to all of us tonight in Jesus. Most of all, reveal to us your character and reveal to us the person of Christ and the work of Christ afresh tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we say goodbye to a friend tonight, First Peter. He's still in your Bible, but uh, we're, we're done with this book uh, as of tonight. And these are Peter's final words to these suffering churches. So it's telling how how a letter begins and how a letter ends are often very telling about the purpose uh, that God had for these people. He's written to suffering churches. These folks are resisted. They are rejected. They are misunderstood. They are slandered. 
uh, they are persecuted Christians. And he has written to them to stand firm. At verse 12 in this passage, this this, uh, second or third to last verse in the entire book is where we took our theme for this whole series, stand firm. He's been writing to them about standing firm in the true grace of God. And so that's where he closes. He began by telling them they were elect people of God, that they had been born again into this living hope that they were a spiritual house that God was building together. He's told them all of these wonderful things about what God is doing in them and through them, even during their own suffering, to grant them hope. And now in this closing section, uh, he's really talking about three ideas. There's three kind of points we could draw out of this last section, that if, if these Christians and if we are to stand firm in God's grace, there's really three things he points to in this passage. The first one is we must be humble. We must be humble. The second one is we must be watchful. And the third and final one is that we must be hopeful. So in this passage, he is closing this letter by telling suffering Christians um, that in view of God's grace to them, they are to be humble they're to be watchful, and they're to be hopeful. First of all, be humble. Now, he takes this idea of humility. We start Really, this passage starts in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God. But he talked about humility before that in verse 5. After he was talking about the elders of the church, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he singles out a particular group in the church and says, Make sure that you subject yourselves, clothe yourselves, all of you. Now he's talking to the whole church. All of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he calls the church to clothe themselves with humility. This word clothe can be translated to tie on, tie on humility. It's a, it's a picture of a servant tying on an apron so that they could serve. And he says in that way, tie on humility so that you are serving others. Now, he's not saying clothe yourself, like wear something that's fake. You're not really humble, but sort of put it on, like putting on airs or putting on an act. He's not saying that. He's not saying put on something that you're not, but he is saying tie on and wear humility as your attitude in terms of how you relate to one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Posture yourselves, he's saying, posture yourselves as humble servants before one another. And he, then he gives this promise that God, God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. We need grace to stand firm in God. And so he's saying, humble yourself and you will find God bringing you aid. You will find God bringing you help. You'll find God bringing you favor, strength power, wisdom. You'll find God working on your behalf, working in you as you humble yourself to receive from him. The posture of humility is the posture of receiving from God. But on the other hand, he says, the proud person is resisted by God, or the ESV says, opposed by God. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Really, there's no greater motivation imaginable than this, that as I humble myself before the Lord, I receive help, I receive power, I receive strength. As I open myself up to him, he will give me what I need. But as I stand in my own strength, as I, as I uh, am proud, 
as I choose not to receive from him or from others, as I'm stubborn, as I, as I rely on myself, I will find myself opposed by God. I mean, what could be worse than having the God of the universe hindering your plans, hindering your direction because you're motivated by pride? God's motive here is always to pour out grace on us. And he will pour out grace on us. He will pour out his help on us. He will give us aid in our time of need. And we have two ways of accessing his help. We can humble ourselves or we can be proud and he will humble us. He will oppose us for the purpose of bringing us to our knees and crying out for his help. The goal is humility. And we can choose to humble ourselves or we can choose to be humbled by God. Um, And the former, the first, is by far the better option to humble ourselves before God. Verse 6, he goes on, So therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, the original readers would have been aware of this phrase, the mighty hand of God. That would have stood out to them because that's the language of the Old Testament that God describes uh, bringing his slaves out of Egypt. He, He moved with a mighty hand and brought captive slaves out of Egypt, defeating the Egyptians, parting the Red Sea, Uh, and really blessing his people tremendously. As they left their captivity, the Egyptians were giving them uh, their goods, their their wealth, their riches. They were giving the slaves who were leaving their stuff on the way out. So God worked powerfully for his people with a mighty hand he brought deliverance. And here he says, humble yourselves under that mighty hand of God, the hand that can deliver a slave from the most powerful nation on earth at that time, Egypt. The hand that can drown Pharaoh's army, those who have resisted God, and free his people. Humble yourself under that hand that God will exalt you at the proper time. The problem is, is that we often don't wait for God to exalt us. We seek to exalt ourselves. That's the problem. We often seek to exalt ourselves. We want to make sure that people notice us that people respect us, that people affirm us, that people love us. And so we exalt ourselves, we, we present ourselves in the most respectable ways, we seek to leave people with an impression that's not really true of us often because we exalt ourselves seeking to win the favor the admiration, oftentimes, of other people. We insert ourselves to go first rather than posturing ourselves as those who go last. We seek to insert ourselves as those who are being served as opposed to those who serve. But he says here, if you will humble yourselves, God will exalt you. God will exalt you in his timing. Now, in a context that they're in, in persecution, that's very powerful. Because the temptation when we are opposed for our faith, the temptation when we are attacked for our faith is to attack back. That's the temptation. It's to attack in return. And yet he says, humble yourself. Don't worry about your status. Trust me with that. Don't worry about if you're in a low place or an exalted place. I will take care of that in due time. Just humble yourself before me, he says. Take a lowly place, and in the proper time, 
I will exalt you. Don't worry about being exalted in the eyes of your coworkers, in the eyes of your family, in the eyes of your church, in the eyes of those who see what you present of yourself on social media. Don't exalt an image of yourself so that other people admire. Just leave that in the hands of the Lord. He says, I'll exalt you at the appropriate time. Now, there's no guarantee that it'll happen this side of glory. But we will, either this side of our death or after our death, God will exalt his people. I love the way the ESV study Bible comments on this. It says, whether later in this earthly life or on the last day, God will exalt his people at the proper time. So he's saying to them and to us, uh, leave your exaltation with me. You simply keep your eyes on me. You humble your heart, um, acknowledging your need before me and before other people, and I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. I'll watch over you. And I will indeed even exalt you. And, and it's, I don't know exactly what all that means, but I know being exalted by God is a lot better than self-exaltation for sure. And then he gives them a specific way to humble themselves. He gives us a specific way. He says in verse 7, so here's a specific demonstration of humility. So humble yourself so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast your anxieties. So how do we humble ourselves? Well, specifically here to people who would have had a lot of anxieties. Anxieties about their safety, anxieties about um, the, the protection of themselves and their family, anxieties about their future. They could see a mounting resistance and hostility in the culture. Um, maybe even anxieties about their life. Are they going to give their life up for Christ? So they certainly had anx anxious thoughts, and he addresses that. Now, there, there can be one... Uh, there can be more than one source uh, for feeling anxious. I'm going to be clear about that. Sometimes anxious thoughts and feelings could have a physiological cause at times. But for the majority of us, okay, for the majority of us in most common situations, worry and anxiety are rooted in pride. And that's why he's saying, that's why he's addressing humility and pride here. Humble yourselves. How do you humble yourself? Cast your anxieties on him. Now, I know that can sound, on first blush, that can sound, well, lacking compassion. Why would we say to an anxious person that there could be pride rooted in their anxiety? Well, again, first of all, there can be different causes of anxiety. But generally speaking, for the Christian, that is a central one. Why is that? Well, it's because it's the kind of pride that hangs on to things that should be given to God. It's, it's, it's the kind of idea that I must control things that are outside of my control. And if I can't, I worry about that. I bear that as a burden. Jesus says, for instance, in Matthew 6, do not worry. It's a command. It's a command. We usually think of, of sin as things that are very pleasurable and enjoyable, so we're pursuing them. Yet the Bible speaks of worry as a sin, <clears throat> and it's miserable. 
It's not enticing. The devil doesn't tempt you with, hey, come over here and have a little worry. You're like, no, thank you. Who wants to be worried? Who wants to be anxious? But the root of it is that it is hanging on to something that we should not hang on to. That's why it says, cast your care on him, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The humble posture for the burdens that I carry is to get them off my back. It's to take the worry and cast. That means to throw or to toss. It's like if you have a bag, gym bag or something like that, uh, you open the car door and you throw it in there. That's casting it. It's getting it off of me. Or if you're carrying a backpack, it's pulling the backpack off and throwing it down on the ground. That's casting something away from you. And that's how he says we are to treat our anxieties. We are to mentally take the burdens of life, and oftentimes they are things that are outside of our control, things we have no power over, things that others might be saying or thinking or doing towards us, things that we want others to do or think or say that they're not doing, uncertain financial situations, uncertain health situations that we cannot control, uncertain marital challenges, challenges within our family. These kinds of things weigh us down. And the grace of this passage is, is he says, cast them off of you because he cares for you. The Lord loves you and he wants to take your burdens. This is the most glorious repentance imaginable because in view here is God taking what we're hanging on to that belongs to him and giving it to him so that he brings relief so that he brings mercy as we give it to him and don't take it back. And when we do take it back, give it back (coughs) to him. Why? Because he cares for us. One commentator, William Harrell, said of this, we have a caring God who regards us as precious in his sight and beloved in his heart. That's at the root of this. You have a God who views you as precious in his sight and beloved in his heart. Our Lord cares for our burdens more responsibly than we could care for them. Hear that. God cares for your burdens more than you could care for them. Our God watches over our welfare infinitely more than we could ever do. As we go down into true humility, we go ever more deeply into the relieving care and loving exaltation of God. As the truly humble have ever discovered and testified, the way up for the Christian is down. It is going down to the place where we say, I give up. I give up. I can't run scenarios in my mind anymore. Well, I can. I won't run what-if scenarios in my mind anymore. I will not do imaginary conversations of what I'm going to say when I have that encounter with the boss, with my parent, with my teenager, whatever it is. I'm not going to run through that in my head. I am I am mentally giving that to God and crying out for his grace that he will take it. And I'm going to take him at his word knowing that he cares for me. And regardless of how this thing plays out, it will be for God's glory and for my good ultimately. Because the promise is he cares for me. 
He's saying, give me that, let me take that, and he's saying that out of love. He's not saying that because he's not able to handle it. He's saying it because we can't handle it, and he can. Some of us are carrying big weights, and we're carrying them, and they feel so big because they're things that we're not supposed to carry. We, we're not, we talked about that a few weeks ago, Psalm 131, that we don't trouble our minds. We don't think of thoughts too, too great for us, things that are God's responsibility and not my responsibility. When I insert myself to bear responsibility for things that God takes responsibility for, that at its foundation is pride. It's pride. Humility is giving to the Lord what is his and releasing it and refusing by the grace of God, by the power of the scripture, crying out for the presence of the Holy Spirit to enable me to really, really come to a place of rest. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is ever uh, accomplished completely in our lives until Jesus returns. This is a battle we will face until we die. But it's a battle that's hopeful because he cares for us. It's hopeful because he cares for us. As we acknowledge we can't handle it, and as we give it to him, and as we refuse to take it back. So commonly, the answer to worry is replacing the worry with a vision of God, with an understanding of Christ, with the character of God from the Scripture, filling my mind with that, and by God's grace, choosing to give that ultimately to him. And I'm not making, again, I don't want, I don't want that to sound trite or simple, but I also don't want to add all kinds of complexities that we tend to add, frequently communicating why our situation is different than everyone else's, um, as opposed to just taking the word at, uh, at its base foundational truth. And this passage, and Matthew 6 in particular with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, says that we can look at how God cares for his creation and know that he loves us more. Uh, his love and his care is at the root of all of this. It's not self-discipline. It's not just like, I've got to be self-disciplined enough. No, it's a vision of a loving God who says, let me take that. Give that to me. Get that off your back. Receive rest. Receive relief. Receive care. Receive love. It's a loving Father that is behind all of this command. So he tells them to be humble, and the example he gives them is to cast their care on the Lord because these are people with great cares. Humble yourself and cast your care on the Lord. The second thing he talks about is being watchful. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we are to be watchful at all times, but especially in times of difficulty, especially in times of trial. He says, be sober-minded. And I think he's using the metaphor of sobriety um, as opposed to drunkenness here. That's, that's the picture he's giving. So he's saying, be alert. So drunkenness, literal drunkenness, um, it, it, it's dulling of the senses. 
The drunk person lacks awareness. The, the drunk person is, uh, is lowering their discernment. There's a, dropping, there's a lowering of inhibition. There's a dropping of the guard. There's a dropping of the critical faculties that make decisions, think clearly, are discerning. Those faculties go down when, when, when the substance of alcohol, which, um, which slows the thinking process, um, leads a person where they're less aware, less discerning, less wise, less uh, lose critical thinking abilities. And so he's saying, don't be that way, but be sober-minded. In other words, in your mind, act in a way that you are seeking to cultivate discernment, cultivate alertness, cultivate awareness. Be the opposite. I don't know what that is. Uh, the opposite of sober, I mean, caffeinated, I don't know, but think, be alert, you know, get, get, don't get a, don't be getting a, a, you know, a spiritual alcohol, get a spiritual energy drink or something, be alert, be aware, uh, and don't dull your spiritual sensitivity, be sober-minded, be watchful. So we want our spiritual sensitivity not to be dulled, but to be awake and alert so that we are <laughs> looking around. What, what, what causes us to lack sober-mindedness? What slows our response to the Lord? What makes us uh, less alert and less discerning? Well, it could be any number of things. It could be what we just read, cast all your anxieties on him. It could be that. If we're walking around ever looking at burdens, ever conscious of burdens, then we will lack discernment because our eyes are not on the Lord. Our eyes are on our world, our circumstances, our burdens. And we will lack sharp thinking and alertness and discernment because our eyes, my eyes are on me, my eyes are not on the Lord. Uh, another one would be, he speaks earlier in this letter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So that could be one. There could be certain things, and we all have things in our life. We know, you know what yours are. I know what mine are. There, there can be things that are passions of the flesh that just dull our sensitivities to the Lord. I know it sounds very subjective. I don't know how else to say it. But it, 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 just, it, it causes us not to be sober-minded not to alert, be alert. Something that sort of causes our heart to be unresponsive to the Lord. It could be a particular temptation. It could be something that dulls our conscience. It could be something that leads us away from being aware of the scripture. It's in the scripture and in prayer and in fellowship that our spiritual alertness is cultivated and we're awake. And he's saying, be alert, be awake. And there's other things that dull that so that we are spiritually sleepy, we are spiritually uh, dulled, we're not sharp, that kind of thing. So he says, be sober-minded. He says, be watchful. And why is this important? Because there is a very real enemy. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. This is really important, he's saying. Look, you need to be alert and you need to be aware, he's saying, because there is a very real enemy that is on the prowl. Now, obviously, a number of people have said this. C.S. Lewis said this. I don't know who all else has said this, but I've just heard people quote him on this. Uh, but <clears throat> there are two extremes that any of us can go to. One is hypersensitivity towards the devil, so that we're always looking out. And we're more watchful and we're more aware of Satan and conspiracies and spiritual powers than we are Jesus. We're more afraid of the devil than we are in love with Christ. That's a big problem. 
and we're looking for a demon everywhere, and we don't really have the flesh or the devil. It's all demons. So there's one big extreme where the devil made me do it. Everything's about the devil. We talk more about the devil. We got conferences on the devil, uh, and it's just devil. Uh, it's that all the time, okay? So that's one extreme. The other extreme would be more where I would be and sadly have probably led us in an imbalanced way, and that would be to not give due attention to the enemy of our souls. Because at one season of my spiritual life, I was in this camp that was hyper-spiritual warfare. I have had a tendency to swing to this camp, which it's all, everything's just the flesh. So the Bible says we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I tend to think of the flesh and the world and not too much of the devil. So I, even, even as I was studying this week, I felt personally more challenged to be centered and not on one of those sides or the other. Now, you may be on the there's a demon everywhere side, or you may be, well, Theologically, I believe there's a devil, but that's it. I could, I'd write yes on a theology test. Yes, there's the, a devil. He's in the Bible, but I've never thought about it. You may be over there. The truth is somewhere in between. Enough that Peter closes a letter to these struggling people and says, you better be aware of the devil, is what he says. Be alert. And some of you aren't alert, and he's winning. I mean, because you're not alert to his scheme. So we need to be alert to him is what he says. Now, what does he say about him? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Adversary is the name Satan. Well, it's not here. Here it's just translated uh, adversary, but that's, uh, that's what Satan means. He's the accuser. The accuser. As a matter of fact, Revelation 12 calls the adversary. It calls him the accuser of the brothers. <laughs> the accuser of the brothers. And one of the primary tactics of the adversary is to accuse, to condemn. When you hear, when I hear the voice in our head of condemnation, you can be certain of the source of that adversarial talk. When we worry about, is God, does God accept me? What is my stand? When my standing before God is being rattled, if you're a Christian and you're standing before God is being, uh, uh, there's an accusation in your mind. Well, I'm not sure I'm very stable before the Lord. Maybe the Lord doesn't love me. You can see how that works, especially in times of trial. Hey, we love Jesus. We were told Jesus loves us. And now some of our Christian friends have been arrested or got fired or got kicked out of their family or whatever the, the, the abuse was. They just say, well, does the Lord really love me? Maybe I'm not secure with him. Maybe I don't even know him. And then all of a sudden, the accusation, the accusations that come that question the Lord's love and the Lord's grace towards us, maybe because we're suffering, he doesn't love us. That's the adversary, the accusation that comes. Maybe God's unwilling to help me in this situation. Maybe God's unable to help me in this situation. Be watchful of those thoughts because those kinds of thoughts that arise, especially when we're in trial, have a satanic uh, root. They have a satan. They're, they're, they're sourced by the devil and himself, the lies that he brings. He also calls them the devil. So he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. The devil means, this word means deceiver. And these are the two primary uh, tricks of his trade. These are the two primary weapons the enemy has. He has accusation, and he beats us down with that, and he has deception. 
And they're, they're related in some ways, but he has deception as well. That's what happens from the very beginning when the serpent approaches Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden. He says to her, now, did God really say? He comes with deceiving questions to question the word of God. And so that's what he does. He deceives and he says, be alert, be aware. There is a deceiver who is prowling around and he's prowling around like a roaring lion. It's the picture of the king of the jungle who is out on the prey and he's ready to devour something, someone, some animal, some prey and eat them. And he says, that's what it's like. The enemy is out and he's roaring like a lion. So he, he, he gives off the sound of utter destruction. And if he can deceive us, he will make us think that the trials and the difficulties that we face are going to be uh, d- utter destruction, they're going to be terror, and that we're going to face them alone. That is the lie of the enemy, that whatever you are going through right now, it's going to go very badly, and it's not only going to go very badly, but you're going to face that and suffer alone. And sometimes life does go very badly, but the promise is he is always with us, and he's always near us, and he's always working in us those things for our good. He will never leave us. But the, the roar is, I mean, back in, back in one, chapter 1, he says this. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says... Uh, We are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God is guarding us. He is watching over and protecting us. But the deception of the roaring lion is you hear the roar and you're about to get eaten. And there's no protection. There's no security. There's no help. There's no defense against the lion. And so that is what he is like, making noise raising fears, raising fears, raising concerns, fostering worries. That's what he deals in. And yet we are kept by God's power. And that's why we have to be sober-minded and watchful and keep our eyes on Jesus. I never thought about this till I read something this week, that Jesus is the true lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we keep our eyes on him, not the false, fake roars of this lion who says he's going to destroy. We listen to the true lion who rules and reigns. One author said that Satan is a cheap imitation of Jesus, the true lion of the tribe of Judah. So the enemy comes and says, you will suffer, you will be alone, it's going to go as bad as you can possibly imagine, and then worse, so you better think about it, you better be worried about it. Or he says, it's going to be really bad, so let me offer something. Why don't you go this direction and pursue the lust of the flesh, pursue greed, passions? Why don't you find something else to give you security? Because God's obviously not giving you security. God's obviously not helping you. God's obviously not fulfilling you. So why don't you find something else? He deceives with fear and with alternative gods, idols we call them. And if we aren't watchful for that and looking to the true lion who rules and reigns, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we will be subject to tremendous, 
tremendous burdens and fears that we are in a very real battle. And how do we hear the Lord's voice? Well, through the word, we pray, we fellowship with his people. We need to be in an environment where we are hearing truth because there's an onslaught of deception and accusation that hits all of us regularly. And we're vulnerable to getting pounded by our trials and drift from the Lord if, we don't, if we're not alert and say, here's the truth. He cares for you. That's what the scripture says. That's what we read earlier. Cast your care on him. He cares for you. He is, chapter 1, verse 5, guarding you for the day of salvation. The enemy cannot take your soul. The roaring lion cannot destroy you. Actually, he can't do anything to you that God does not permit. We see that in the story of Job. And there were limitations. Job suffered tremendously. But God, God put, a, put a limit. He is a, the, the devil is on a leash. I love what Martin Luther said. He's the devil, but he's God's devil. He's under God's rule and reign and control. And he goes no farther than the Lord allows. And however far he goes, the Lord is with us in that and through that and will work it for our good ultimately. We just need to be alert. I just, I just need to be alert to think truth because I get tempted by deception all the time. I'm not talking about deception like believing, you know, heretical things like there's other gods. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the deception that believes false things about God. Maybe he's not going to help me. Maybe I am stuck. Maybe it is going to go really bad. Maybe I am going to face that problem in the future and he's not going to rescue me or work in it or through it. Or I get tempted. Well, here's, an, here's a source. Man, I could find some comfort in this. Go look here or this substance or this thing or this idea or this pursuit. Uh, that would provide some real rescue from the burdens I feel, some real relief from the trouble of the anxieties of my soul. And yet the truth is, no, he cares for you. There's a roar out there, but it's not a real lion. It's a CGI lion, and he's being controlled by God ultimately. And his roar is fake. He cannot destroy you because you are in the Lord's hands. So we want to be watchful, and, and we want to be watchful as a church as well. I, I think I said this last week. I don't mean to say this to be any, kind, any weird or anything, but... I think we are entering a season of great blessing and great vulnerability. I just really do. Whenever there's blessing of the Lord, there is vulnerability. Here's why. It's when things are going poorly, badly, that we're typically most desperate to cry out to God and pursue him. It's when things are going well that we forget about him. And we just think, hey, we're okay. Things are going well. Look, look what's happening. That happens in our individual lives, and that happens to churches as well. And the humble are those who cry out for the need of God. Thank him for the blessings and realize everything is from his hand and realize that we need him. And the arrogant says, look at us. Look what we did. And maybe I wouldn't say it quite that, but usually we would Christianize it a little bit. Well, praise the Lord, look what we did, you know, or something like that. <laughs> praise, uh, we'll tell you about all that we did. Look at our website. Here's all the great stuff about us uh, that, by God's grace, we're this great. But, you know, that's the temptation that we all think that way. So he says, be watchful, not to be scared, but to be running to the one who cares for us and to be aware of the accusation that comes, which says, which, which, tells us 
false things when the truth is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the roaring lion will say otherwise, but it's false. You are not condemned if you are in Christ. You are dearly loved, and he wants to take your burdens and show himself strong. That's the truth. He will never leave you or forsake you. And if the worst happens and you die, you go into his presence for eternity. You win. You win. That's the truth. So we want to be watchful and know where the temptation comes to believe otherwise. And last, be hopeful. So be humble, be watchful, and be hopeful. Look at how he ends the letter. I love this. Um, he says, verse 10, after you, I skipped a few verses, I skipped one verse, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to move on for time. Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Uh, this is one of the best phrases in the book. After you have suffered a little while. Now, in the midst of it, it never feels like a little while, right? I get sick for a day, and it's like, I've been sick for years, man. You know, oh, this is terrible. I'll probably, I'm, I'm dying of this cold for sure. This is, it. this is the one. I'm coming to see you, Elizabeth. I mean, that, that whole, that's, I feel that. So we can feel when it's going on, man, it is really bad. But God's perspective is, hey, these guys are getting persecuted. Hey, it feels really bad and really scary. It's a little while. Now, we want to be careful. We just don't say that to people in the midst of their suffering. Just like in the anxiety, I wouldn't go to people, right? I'm feeling really worried. Repent! You know, there's some compassion. There's compassion that's needed to, well, tell me about it. And, and maybe, let me pray for you. And how can I help? And, you know, obviously, maybe you need to see your doctor. I mean, there's a lots, of, lots, of, lots of things. It's not just repent or something like that. And here, it's not just, why are you whining? Come on, it's just a little while. No, we show compassion, but God does tell us this, that it is shortly lived. Because uh, this is the reality. Compared to eternity, whatever we're facing is short. Second Corinthians 4 says, they are light and momentary afflictions. And if you read what Paul's afflictions were, I mean, his good day is, is worse than any of our great days. I mean, uh, in our worst days, rather. So he suffered tremendously, but he said it's light and momentary because there's a weight of glory in front of us. God, there is an eternity. There is suffering and then glory. That's the pattern of Jesus, suffering and then glory and exaltation. And that's the pattern for the Christian. This is the problem with prosperity theology is that it wants heaven today and it denies that the pathway of discipleship is taking up a cross it is suffering today and glory forever. And by the way, God with us in the midst of suffering. God graciously moving and helping us, delivering us from some sufferings miraculously and allowing others to continue because he's forming us to be like Jesus. The goal is not comfort and trouble-free life. The goal is to be like Jesus. And that comes through God-ordained suffering in different ways in our lives. But it's always for a little while because very quickly, this is what he says, very quickly, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, he's all full of grace towards you. If you know Christ, then his posture to you is all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We're called to be in eternity with Jesus in his glory. Called you to eternity in Christ. He will restore you. 
The word means mend. It's the same word that spoke of the disciples mending their nets. He is going to put you back together. Whatever is broken right now in your soul and in your life, it's going to be restored. It may be, some of it may be restored while you're alive. It will for sure be all restored when you see Christ. He, he, what else does he say? You're going to be restored. You're going to be confirmed. There's all this accusation. There's all this opposition. He's going to confirm you are my child for eternity. He is going to confirm that. He's going to strengthen you. You will find strength now, and you will find eternal strength in a glorified body that will know no sin, no challenges, no hurt, no pain, no difficulty. You will be ultimately strengthened by God. He may choose to strengthen you in ways right now, but he will strengthen you eternally. And he will establish you. They feel like life is disorienting. God will see that it is completely oriented around him in your lives. He will establish you. It's glorious, isn't it? His promises that he gives them. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. It's going to be better than okay. It's going to be perfect. One day, it will be perfect. So be hopeful. You have every reason to trust God because your trial is a little while and then you'll see him face to face. I love how Paul says it in Romans 16. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Very soon you will see him fully crushed under your feet. Wonderful. I remember I was walking through a difficulty, a real dark night of the soul a number of years ago. Um, walking through some difficulties in my family and just walking through really some discouragement in my soul. And I'd shared that with a number of people I was close to that were helpful. And I can remember, I can actually remember where I was standing one day when one of our pastors, Rob, gave me a bit of counsel. And it just stuck with me. I remember him saying to me that he just simply said, the story isn't over yet. In the midst of something really hard, really discouraging that looked bleak. The story isn't over yet. I don't know what you're facing tonight, but the truth is if you're in Christ, the story's not over yet. It's, it's likely going to change in your life. N- n- maybe not, but probably the circumstance will change in your life, but it will for sure ultimately change when you see Jesus face to face. Whatever it is, it is a little while compared to eternity. And that gives us faith to press on in Christ. It leads Peter to worship. He says, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He rules, he worships. He rules over everything forever. That is sober-mindedness. That is watchfulness. That is casting all care on him. He rules, and that's where my worship, that's where my heart, that's where my focus is, Peter says. And he will sustain me. It's a little while, but the story's not over yet. He will establish, confirm, strengthen, and restore me. That's good news. He closes with some relational notes. This guy, Sylvanus, is, he regards him as a faithful brother. He's delivering the letter, evidently. Um, he talks what we've already talked about, stand firm in the grace of God. 
Some people at Rome, Babylon is the foreign power that rules over God's people. In the Old Testament, in, the, in their situation, it's Rome. So that's probably what he means. She who's at Babylon is Rome, the worldly power that rules over them, um, who is likewise chosen. Send you greetings. So the church at Rome says hello. So does Mark. That's restoration. Mark had kind of gone his own way away from uh, Paul, and now he's here working with Peter. God had a plan for Mark. He was established and restored. Wonderful. Greet one another with the kiss of love. I don't have time to develop that, but I think culturally we're sticking with fist bumps and side hugs. And I love you, but I may not be kissing you. Uh, I think in their culture and in many cultures today, Middle Eastern cultures and stuff, uh, you know, people just kiss each other and that's a common expression. So I, I, I do believe literally in the Bible, but I think culturally you've you got to take culture into consideration to some degree. There you go. Love you. And I don't want to debate that, but I don't want to kiss you either. So, uh, but I love you. I love you. And if it was really bad, you were really hurting, and yes, I, if that would help you, I'll kiss you on the cheek, but okay. I'm digging myself in a hole. Okay. And then he closes with this, peace to all of you who are in Christ. So he closes with peace. Peace. The shalom of God upon you in Christ. They are troubled. Their hearts are restless. They are fearful. And that's the closing word. Peace to you in Christ. And I just want to close this letter and this entire study. We did 12 messages on First Peter. I just want to close the whole thing with that as well. May the peace of Christ be ours as we look to him alone for our hope. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.